Hello there, and welcome to The Road to Nicaea, Christ, Creed, and Controversy in the Turbulent Fourth Century, part of the Earth and Altar Podcast Network. Supplemental. Nuns, Crosses, and Proto-Feminists. Oh my! Gregory's Life of Macrina. As you have probably noticed, the road to Nicaea has been a bit of a boys' club. This is not all that surprising. The ancient Roman Empire was a pretty patriarchal place. And when you're telling a story mostly about emperors who could only be men, and clergy who could also only be men, there is precious little space to talk about women. But there are some exceptions to that rule, and we have one of the biggest ones today, thanks to Gregory of Nyssa. In addition to his devotion to Basil, Gregory also had a special place in his heart for his older sister Macrina, who he describes as one of his great teachers. He wrote a short letter describing her life, which is called, fittingly enough, The Life of Macrina. It's a text that has caused some to praise Gregory as almost a proto-feminist, while others see it as little more than another example of ancient Roman misogyny. Let's walk through the life of this remarkable woman to see which side has it right, and to learn a little bit more about the kind of role a woman could play in such a patriarchal narrative. Macrina was, in a stunning coincidence, born into the same family as her brothers Basil and Gregory. She was named after her grandmother, the one who was baptized by Gregory Thaumaturgus and is credited with most of the family's legendary piety. Now, as Gregory unfolds his sister's history, we quickly learn that she comes from a line of frustrated virgins. Specifically, of people who really wanted to be virgins, but couldn't. You see, Macrina's mother really, really wanted to live as a consecrated virgin, one of those proto-monastic types. But that wasn't going to happen. For her parents died while she was still quite young, and she needed some way of garnering support for herself. Fortunately, she had an important skill to accomplish that, which was that she was really really good-looking. Like, seriously, Gregory of Nyssa goes on at some length about how hot his mom was when she was in her youth. Fortunately, this podcast is not brought to you by Sigmund Freud, so we're just going to skip right past that bit. These good looks were an important skill because they helped cement a marriage to their father, and then Macrina's mom gave birth to Basil, Gregory, and Macrina. She didn't get to live that monastic life she'd been hoping for, but she did get to raise a whole bunch of wannabe monastics. Macrina was definitely among those wannabe monastics. She was betrothed to a young man at the age of 12, which is not uncommon for the day, particularly for families of high social class. But that young man had the poor judgment to die of illness before reaching adulthood, which put a bit of a dent in the wedding planning. Macrina took this opportunity to tell her dad that she was planning to live as a virgin, just as her mother had wanted to. Her dad kept bringing up new suitors to propose to her, but she told him, you know, really, Dad, if you think about it, I'm, I'm already betrothed. I mean, I'm still betrothed, because, you know, if you think about it, my first love is still alive. You know, he's in heaven, and we've got a resurrection coming and all that. 
So, you know, don't you think it's important that I be faithful to him? You know, it just wouldn't be right to marry some other guy when my never-quite-husband is looking down on us from heaven, you know? Reading this bit, it's hard to escape the feeling that Macrina was really trying to say, Dad, boys are gross, and I don't want to marry one. But in a world in which that was not an acceptable answer, Macrina's sincere desire to live an ascetic life proved a more acceptable reason. And this is actually something we see a lot in the early centuries of Christianity. For women who were not particularly interested in marriage, Christianity gave them one of precious few options for living a single life. In most Roman households, women were expected to be married. They just were. It was part of how families formed alliances with each other. It was part of how families expanded their wealth. And frankly, many families thought of their daughters as economic burdens, and marriage was a way to foist that burden on someone else. But if a woman could claim that she wanted to dedicate her life to God, to betroth herself to God, as so many later nuns would describe it, now she had a way of expressing her autonomy that could be considered acceptable within her surroundings. So Macrina chose that different life, staying with her mother and helping her to run the family estate. Now this was quite a complicated task. The family had substantial means, so they had holdings across Cappadocia, and actually wound up owing taxes to three different regional governors because of the geographical distributions of their territory. Macrina handled these tasks with skill and care, and dedicated the rest of her time to weaving, at which she was apparently quite good, and to the worship of God. Macrina's moral influence over the rest of the family was substantial. While Basil attributed his decision to leave rhetorical life behind to his charismatic mentor, Gregory attributes it to Macrina. Apparently, when Basil returned from Athens feeling quite impressed by his own education, Macrina was very good at gently deflating her brother's pretensions and getting him to focus on a religious life. We also know that Macrina supplied important solace and comfort to her mother after the tragic death of one of their younger brothers, and she encouraged her mother to pursue the same ascetic life she was on. In many ways, Macrina was the rock on which the whole family could rest. And so Macrina and her mother then began to pursue an ascetic life together, living as proto-nuns until the death of Macrina's mother. Then Macrina worked with her youngest brother, a guy named Peter, to turn the family estate into a convent. She lived as a virgin, a nun, and a general really good person for the rest of her days. Then she fell ill, and Gregory came to visit his sister before her end. Now this is where the life really gets going. It turns out that everything else has been just a prologue up to this point, and Gregory slows way down to make sure we get all the details of his sister's virtuous death. So here's how it goes. Gregory shows up and is, you know, kind of sad that his beloved older sister is dying. And Macrina tells him to stop with all that because, you know, they're Christians, and they believe in the resurrection, so it's all going to be okay. Hmm, maybe that whole I can't marry because my dead betrothed is still alive in heaven wasn't actually an act, because she seems to be using the same line here. At this point, Macrina goes into full philosopher mode and gives Gregory a convincing argument for the immortality of the soul. In fact, it's so philosophical and convincing 
that Gregory writes a whole nother book about it. That book is called On the Soul and Resurrection, and you can read it for yourself if you would like to hear Gregory's account of their final dialogue. But for now, we're going to skip over that bit and just point out that not only does Macrina keep her own stuff together on her deathbed, she manages to calm down Gregory and get him feeling peaceful and hopeful about the whole thing, too. Then, as she knows she is slipping away, she concludes with a final prayer that is pretty bawling, and the prayer goes like this, and I quote, You, O Lord, have freed us from the fear of death. You have made the end of this life the beginning to us of true life. For a season you rest our bodies in sleep, and then awake them again at the last trumpet. You give our earth, which you have fashioned with your hands, to the earth to keep in safety. One day you will take again what you have given, transfiguring with immortality and grace our mortal and unsightly remains. You have saved us from the curse and from sin, having become both for our sakes. You have broken the head of the dragon who seized us with his jaws in the yawning gulf of disobedience. You have shown us the way of resurrection, having broken the gates of hell and brought to nothing him who had the power of death, the devil. You have given a sign to those that respect you in the symbol of the Holy Cross to destroy the adversary and save our life. O God eternal, to whom I have been attached from my mother's womb, whom my soul has loved with all its strength, to whom I have dedicated both my flesh and my soul from my youth up until now. O oh, do give me an angel of light to bring me to the place of refreshment, where is the water of rest in the bosom of the Holy Fathers. Thou that did break the flaming sword and restore to paradise the man that was crucified with you and implored your mercies, remember me too in your kingdom, because I too was crucified with thee, having nailed my flesh to the cross for fear of you and of your judgments have I been afraid. Let not the terrible chasm separate me from your elect, nor let the slanderer stand against me in the way, nor let my sin be found before your eyes. If in anything I have sinned in word or deed or thought, let astray by the weakness of human nature. O you who have power on earth to forgive sins, forgive me, that I may be refreshed and may be found before you when I put off my body without defilement on my soul. But may my soul be received into your hands, spotless and undefiled, as an offering before you. End quote. And having just basically read her own last rites, Macrina dies and passes into the eternal life. Gregory then finishes up by relating a couple of cool things that happened after her death, including discovering a piece of jewelry she had that supposedly contained a piece of the true cross. With that, Gregory ends the book. There's a lot of interesting content in the life of Macrina, but none more so than the way that Gregory treats his sister's gender. Because on the one hand, Gregory depicts Macrina as the consummate philosopher and ascetic. That book on the soul and resurrection that he writes, it's formatted like a platonic dialogue, and Macrina gets to play the role of Socrates. She gets to take on the male role, and not just any male role, but one of the most admired personages of all antiquity, Socrates. And throughout her whole life, Macrina comforts and improves everybody around her, like a true philosopher or a true cleric would, roles that, historically, women didn't get to play. And Macrina doesn't do it in the way that a late ancient woman would have been expected to. 
In other words, she doesn't comfort everybody and improve them by taking care of them and being a submissive person who just tends to the housework. No, she comforts them by reasoning with them. She uses her brain and her virtue. This is a really big deal. The Roman Empire was, of course, a pretty patriarchal place. And one of the main reasons is that the standard line on gender was that women had less reasoning capacity than men. Women were supposed to be more emotional and less rational than their male counterparts. And Gregory's portrayal of Macrina flatly contravenes this portrayal. Which might make you think that Gregory has way more progressive views on gender than most of his contemporaries. But there is also another side of this. Because Gregory spends a lot of time in this letter talking about how great it is that Macrina isn't being silly and emotional and doing dumb things like crying when people die. Or being scared when she's dying. I mean, can you imagine? In other words, it seems like Gregory is saying that what makes Macrina so great is she is not like other girls. She doesn't have all those silly emotions that weigh them down. And that seems like a much less progressive stance to take. Now, scholars have written literally hundreds of pages trying to untangle Gregory's views of gender. I'm not going to be able to explain all that work here. I just want to point out a couple of things that might help us understand how Gregory can seem so egalitarian and so misogynistic in the very same work. For starters, you need to know that Gregory doesn't think that sexual difference was part of God's plan for humanity from the beginning. Gregory thinks that if we had stayed sinless, then there would have been no sexual difference because there would have been no sex. The human race would have just reproduced asexually. I've never been quite sure how Gregory thinks asexual reproduction would have happened for us. I mean, are we going to split ourselves in two like Jell-O or, or think a kid into existence? exchange an extra firm handshake with our partner? We'll never know, alas, since humanity did sin. And God, foreknowing that humanity was going to mess things up, designed us with sex differences as a plan B, so that we could reproduce in a bodily way. The upshot of this account is that male and female souls are equal in Gregory's thought because they are exactly the same soul. Souls don't have sex differences, they're all just pure, ordinary human souls, exactly like God planned in the beginning. Those souls just happen to get stuck in particular kinds of bodies at birth. As such, the souls of females are every bit as capable of reasoning, reflection, and virtue as the souls of males are. How could they not? They're exactly the same thing. In other words, Gregory generally denies that any gender differences we see have a basis in sex difference because all souls are equal and they have equal capacities. However, although Gregory deconstructs this one sexual hierarchy, he leaves in place other hierarchies that are heavily gendered. Gregory definitely thinks that reason is better than emotion, that self-control is better than self-expression, and that spirits are better than bodies. And although he didn't invent this, he also lives in a culture that associates men with the positive side of each of those binaries, and women with the negative sides of those binaries. Men are associated with reason, self-control, and the spiritual. Women are associated with emotion, self-expression, and bodies. And because of that, Gregory can't fully escape the misogyny of his society 
because he still carries around its prejudices. Even though he thinks women are just as capable as men of thinking and virtue and attaining God's favor, he thinks they have to do it solely by engaging in male-coded behaviors and attitudes. So even if he says there's nothing inherently masculine about those behaviors, others could look at his depiction of the good life and think it sounds like, well, a bit of a boys' club. And Macrina seems limited by that boys' club as well. What we see with Macrina is what we see with a lot of early Christian ascetic women. In some ways, she's using the power of the ascetic life to assert a greater level of autonomy and self-control than she might have had otherwise. She basically becomes the leader of a convent. She's able to avoid the married life that she really doesn't seem to want. And yet, Macrina perhaps also carries around some internalized misogyny. Perhaps she as well has internalized this belief that male virtues are the proper way to connect to God. It wouldn't be surprising. Internalized misogyny is a difficult thing for those of us in the 21st century to root out. How much harder would it be in the 4th century, both for Macrina and for her little brother biographer? So, that's Gregory's Life of Macrina for you. This is a book written by a man who clearly loves his sister and saw in her a mind fully equal to his own. More than equal, in fact. Macrina is his teacher throughout his life and even on her deathbed. Yet all that does not a 4th century feminist make. We see promising glimmers in Gregory's thought. But in this time period, they will remain just that, glimmers, unable to fully shine out in the midst of the patriarchy of late ancient Rome. Yet surely it's heartening, is it not, to see those glimmers in the past to reach out across time and space to find points of commonality between the most uncommon of situations. And after all, our journey through this life is long and winding, and like-minded companions are scarce. We can surely do far worse than to turn to past luminaries for companionship along this road to Nicaea. This is an Earth and Altar Podcast Network production. For more podcasts and weekly articles, visit us at earthandaltermag.com.